0: Haley wilson Lamont, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me, Bill.
0: Awesome. Grateful for this chance to to have this conversation. The reason you're on here is because you have been working jointly uh, on a project that goes into the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, something you've been working on for a while. But just last year, a little tidbit comes out about this that I think is extremely interesting, and it's something that we're going to we're going to dive into this Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, which gets really interesting because there's some evidence in this that Joseph Smith is borrowing, uh, perhaps heavily, from mm-hmm. the Adam Clark commentary, which was contemporary to Joseph Smith's day. But before we jump into that issue, Haley, I wonder if maybe you can just give us kind of a brief bio of who you are, and then let's kind of jump into, uh, jump into this topic.
1: Yeah. So, um, I'm Haley, obviously. And at the time of this recording, I am a, I'm a senior, uh, at BYU in Provo. Um, I graduate in April. So that's exciting. Um, I am what they call an ancient Near Eastern studies major, which is basically the closest thing that BYU has to a religious studies, uh, degree, uh, focuses on Judaism and early Christianity. Uh, And that's kind of how I found Dr. Wayment. He's one of the faculty associated with the the major. Um, I'm married. Uh, My husband and I have been married for a year and a half. Um, We are getting ready to move out to Notre Dame where I've been accepted into a graduate program in Early Christian Studies. uh, And that will start this fall. Uh, So I don't know if there's anything else you want to know about me. Um, I was born to the church. Uh, my mom was a convert my dad was born into the church so um, a little new there I served a mission in Panama the country I got back in April of 2014 and started working for Tom in January of 2015 so and all of this started happening in the summer of 2015 so excellent pretty quickly after cool. I got back
0: <laughs> so the first thing we need to ask is maybe generally speaking because I know I know that uh, brother Waymond has had, interest in this topic for some time going back. So maybe generally between the two of you, but also specifically with you, what initiated the research into this topic and how did you get involved?
1: So uh, it was all Dr. It was, he, um So he sent me an email over the summer while I was away and he wanted me to compare um, Buck's Theological Dictionary, which was a very popular uh, I guess, dictionary at the time, during the time that Joseph Smith was was doing all of these things. Uh, Adam Clark's Bible commentary and just anything that Joseph had said or written that was published w- through the JST, the Joseph Smith Papers project. So I was able to because they're focusing on digitizing a lot of it. Um, and so it started out really with an intense focus on. Uh, where they intersect, because Joseph Joseph um, he quotes directly from from Buck's dictionary in his lectures on faith, and I think I don't want to I don't want to say definitively, but I think that's one of the things that got uh, Tom interested in this in this intersection between the three of them. I never asked him why he included Clark, and honestly, the first month or two of of comparing. like had nothing to do with clark i wasn't even really looking at clark because i wasn't finding much in his sermons or in his lectures on faith or any of the or even we were even looking at um he had me go through the entire doctrine and covenants and look for parallels or quotes um and we didn't find much there so that's kind of how this whole thing started
0: gotcha um so you're doing these comparisons, you're, you're sitting down with these other texts, and, and you're recognizing, too, because I think it's an important point, you're saying this Bucks Dictionary, um, Joseph Smith is borrowing from that for other pieces of his theological work. Um, and, and, but you eventually come across the Joseph Smith translation, and you set it side-by-side side with Clark's commentary, and, and tell us about some of the things you discovered as, you, as the two of you began to do that research
1: yeah, so um, I was still kind of just doing all these parallels. Um, and I I was sitting in a Sunday school, not really listening, <laughs> and I was looking through the the JST in Matthew because that wasn't that wasn't somewhere I had looked yet. and I was kind of feeling like our project wasn't going anywhere and we had talked about starting to move on and I was like, well, uh the JST kind of functions as a commentary a little bit in a way. And so I was like, I'm curious. And so if you've ever looked at Clark's Bible commentary, it's just arranged by verses and you can actually access the whole thing online. So, uh, I've opened the, I opened, uh, my new Testament to Matthew 522, which is the, uh, where he omits without a cause from the verse. And then I pulled it up, pulled up Adam Clark. Um, and, in it, he talks. Of, Clark talks about how without a cause is lacking from some of the most well-known manuscripts, and Joseph, and Joseph admits that. And I realized uh, that there might be something there. I didn't want to jump the gun, so I went home and, and looked through the whole book of Matthew and, and found uh, at least uh, ten or fifteen uh, possible parallels. And two, oh, let's see, I'm actually looking at my list right now and two solid uh, like parallels that suggest we don't know if if Joseph Smith had Clark right in front of him when he was doing this. But it suggests that he was literally lifting uh, these ideas from Clark. Uh, so uh, after that, that next week, um, I took this to Dr. Wayman and uh, he was pleasantly surprised and he um i'm trying to remember exactly what he said just how shocking and amazing it was and he gave me a brief uh like a brief rundown of what we would consider to be borrowing uh so what we looked at mostly was if clark made a suggestion and joseph did it or if he discussed what was or wasn't in the uh in the most well-known manuscripts and what joseph did with that And then, of course, if there's uh, I think we said four words or more of like copy text, direct quotations that we would consider that to be direct or close to direct borrowing. Uh, So it was a very exciting moment when we first when I first took it to him uh, and said, I think I think Joseph is doing this thing. And then he's like, well, now you have the job of of going through the whole New Testament. So, and we would just meet whenever I would finish a book. So once I got through Mark, we would meet up and talk about those parallels. And uh, that's kind of how it went for a month or two.
0: So I want to add, I mean, so it sounds like you're doing, you're kind of the feet on the ground doing all of the, the research with this. Um, I, I've been having conversations with Radio Free Mormon. He's another host on our podcast lineup and just talking to him about this issue and kind of bouncing ideas off him and him bouncing ideas off me, one of the things he was curious about was you're listed first in this paper. And is that kind of a, a reaction to how much of the, the feet on the ground work that you did in this, in this uh, process?
1: This is a really easy question to answer. So the, the little snippet that you guys have is from the ORCA website that BYU has. Uh, It's a, it's a grant that students, so the ORCA is a grant that students receive. It's about, it's like $1,300 or something that they receive for original research that they do with a faculty member. Uh, The, the website page that everyone has been uh, looking at is where, was like my final report for the ORCA so that they wouldn't take the money back kind of thing. So how it works is you submit a proposal and if you get approved, you have until that December, to like show the fruits of your research. And so that's listed. My name's listed first on that site because it was that's a student uh, based site and the grant is the student grant. So I think they typically put the students names first there. If if you ask both of us, the work was 50 50. Uh, Tom has a lot of the background with the JST. uh, And I mostly did the legwork with finding the parallels kind of Tra- showing him which parallels were the most significant, um, and then when it came to writing the paper, we each wrote sections. Originally, uh, Tom wanted me to write the paper myself, uh, and I think we decided that it would carry more weight if his name was on it. So that's that's kind of what we decided and when, how it, when you handle it. Went.
0: Yeah, when you have this moment in Sunday school and all of a sudden you get onto this new thing, like you've discovered for the first time in Mormonism how, how directly Joseph is borrowing from Clark's commentary. D- does it hit you like how important of a discovery that is?
1: Well, yes. I mean, okay, this is like reflecting culture, like cultural Mormonism in a little bit a, a way. I think, because I don't think the GST is viewed the same way the, well, okay, I know the JST isn't viewed the same way the Book of Mormon is viewed, right? There's this idea that the Book of Mormon is this spotless text uh, that Joseph completely translated, however he, tra- however uh, Orthodox Mormons want to say he translated it. So when I when I discovered the JST, I knew it was important, but it didn't feel as monumental as like saying we found a legitimate source for, say, the Book of Mormon, or even some of Joseph Smith's revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, so I knew it was a big deal. But I wasn't, I wasn't, um, like, jumping out of my seat yet. for just, you know. Uh, and also, I couldn't talk about it. So it was exciting. But really, the one person I could talk about it with wasn't he was out of town so and I wasn't going to see him for a week or two. And so I was excited, but I'd also been doing this project where I'd been kind of tearing apart uh, all of these texts that I had been raised to to view as sacred, I guess, in a way. And so I was I was excited, but not as surprised as I think I would have been had I found it at the very beginning uh, of the project
0: so there's going to be there's going to be a conversation that 's going to occur around whether some of this is coincidence, which i don 't think it is, and I think I think you're pointing to that already i I want to ask like if you get a if you can maybe give us a feel for just how much Joseph is directly borrowing and 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 for the sake of this conversation, I think it 's fair to say plagiarized and and I think yeah, plagiarism in you know 18 you know 40 or 1835 would have been a much different understanding than in today's scholarly way of seeing plagiarism but let's just use the word plagiarism is there can you give us a feel for just how much plagiarism joseph is doing with the joseph smith translation using clark's commentary or even if you want to branch out and say like what he's, other things he's using for other theological pieces of his work
1: yeah so this gets into an interesting conversation because uh, the book that's coming out from the University of Utah Press is full of articles discussing different it's – it's a book on translation, and so it's full of – there's, a, 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 there's going to be a great article on the Book of Mormon. Uh, there's going to be a great article on the Book of Abraham, which uh, I was the, the research assistant for the professor who wrote that one as well. Um, that will dive further into this question, and that's all I can say on it right now. But um, in terms of Clark – and the GST, I, I have the parallels in front of me. And just speaking in terms of direct engagement, uh, he plagiarized Clark about 30 times in his New Testament uh, translation. And a little less in, his, less in his Old Testament, but there's about 10 parallels, 15 direct parallels in the Old Testament. There's a lot. <laughs>
0: And, and these aren't just like one word here or no. there. These are these are so, whole sentences. These are whole definitions. Yes, yeah, so I'll whole... read you,
1: I can read you an example or two. Okay, so Exodus nine. Let's pull an Old Testament one. So Exodus nine is ta- is um, uh, God talking to Moses about Pharaoh, and uh, Joseph um, makes a very interesting alteration to the verse, changing the phrase "Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you" to read Philip, "Pharaoh." will not hearken unto you. And that seems really minute, but Clark points out, if we translate as we should do, Pharaoh will not hearken. It alters the case most essentially and agrees with the many passages in the preceding chapters where he is said to have hardened his own heart. Um, so that seems really minor, but Clark is obviously saying um, that uh, it needs to be will in this instance. And Joseph um Nursely does it but i want to find a better one another important thing that we had to look at was what kind of changes is clark initiating or are there specific instances where joseph was doing this like is his lack of knowledge of of ancient languages the reason he's using clark uh so those are kind of things we looked at too but uh we didn't find like a consistent reason why uh joseph was using clark just that he was using him so i think that's an important note um Okay, so in 1 John 5:13, uh, Joseph changes the phrase "believe" to "continue to believe." So the, the entire phrase can be render, rendered as "and that ye may continue to believe on the name of the Son of God." Um, Adam Clark remarks on the phrase um, "believe" in this verse, saying that it should be understood as "that is, continue to believe," for Christ dwells in the heart only by faith. So here's a strike through because I think there's a question about a strike through uh, relating to how this. How this all works. Uh, so uh, in Psalm 119.20, uh, Joseph crossed out soul. So my soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. Uh, and the JST changes the word soul to heart. And then Clark comes in and we, we read Clark and it says we have a similar express, expression. It broke my heart. This is heartbreaking. Uh, it expresses excessive longing, grie- grievous disappointment, hopeless love, accumulated sorrow. So um, it seems that Joseph read that read that uh, passage in Clark and decided that heart was better in soul for uh, modern readers. And then the last one that I'll do is actually one that's been discussed in uh, JST circles for a while and is and they've wondered why uh, JST changed it, because it's it's unclear of his knowledge of Hebrew at this point when he's working on the JST. Uh, but in Isaiah 34-7, where the KJV KJV reads, and the unicorns shall come down with them, uh, J- the JST has, and the M shall come down with them, which is a very Hebrew word. But if you read Clark, it has, Reemim translated wild wild goats uh, by Bishop Loth. The reem, so there's the word that Joseph uses. Bachert thinks to be a species of wild goat, uh, and it seems generally to mean the rhinoceroses. So these are just a couple uh, interesting parallels, and I pulled mostly from the New Testament because our article you'll get to see a lot of the New Testament ones in our well, the best New Testament ones in the article when it comes out. But um, I think it's just an interesting a swath of examples that show the different ways that that Joseph Smith used Clark and that there's no there's not really like a specific reason that he's he's using him exactly he's not wondering he's not just using it to omit to omit words and he's not just using it to add words and he's not just using it to to change words he's he's using it in a lot of different uh, ways whether it's conceptually or the. Theologically, uh, and so we we aren't sure exactly why he used Clark, but it's really clear that he did.
0: Excellent. So, I wanted to make sure I capture this idea right, which is um, the concept that we in the church have framed. And I'll just use this this living this Joseph Smith translation. We framed it in a way that Joseph is going back into the scriptures, God is speaking to him, and he is restoring these lost ideas that, um, that got corrupted, right? We believe the Bible is true in as far as it is translated correctly. And we we come up with that phrase from the 13 Articles of Faith. But it's this idea that Joseph's trying to capture that, that there was some type of something lost. There was some form of apostasy. And, and the Bible in some way, shape, or form, lost pieces and parts. It was corrupted. And Mormonism, from Joseph Smith's death till today, has run with that idea. And and so we frame this idea that Joseph Smith is restoring these ancient concepts. And and Brother Wayman was on the LDS Perspectives podcast with Laura Hales, and one of the things he makes a point about is that we have to let that go. Like, yes, there are parts that I think from a believing perspective, we can still hold on to as revelatory. And, and, and I'll have you speak to this hopefully at some point in this interview, but he he um, makes this difference between what we see early on in the Old Testament work that Joseph is doing uh, in Genesis, and then there being this kind of direct shift to more of what we're talking about in this interview, which is the direct borrowing from other, other works, Uh, predominantly uh, Adam Clark's commentary. Um, This this shift means that we're going to have to begin to see that Joseph perhaps is not restoring ancient concepts that were there in the beginning, but rather what Joseph Smith seems to be doing is doing exactly what Adam Clark was doing, which was make the scriptures more relatable to the reader who's reading it in the here and now. Um, Your thoughts on that?
1: That's a big question. Uh, so I think there's a lot going on with the JST and with all of these other texts that we still don't know and we don't understand. Uh, I do agree with Dr. Raymond that um, we have to uh, reshape how we understand these texts, whether it's in terms of however, if you want to see them as revelatory, uh, I think you'll have to um Reshape your ideas of what they are, but I also don't think we can say that he completely plagiarized everything. There's definitely something going on there. There's definitely a part of, like Joseph Smith is in the text in a in a way that we won't under we don't understand. And I think even if we had all the sources in front of us that he ever used, I still don't think we could completely understand it, just because Joseph was a product of his time and he was engaging in existing conversations and existing, like an existing cultural context that we don't completely have right now and that we can't completely resurrect. Um, So I do think we have to, I do agree that we do have to uh, kind of recalibrate how we approach these texts. Uh, Dr. Raymond and I had a conversation not that long ago about uh, if you want to approach this in a way that helps that helps you handle this uh, in a way that still—I don't want to say—maintains the narrative, but kind, but makes this a little bit more palatable. Uh, about the time that Joseph was doing this translate, doing this work with the JST, uh, he re- recorded the revelation to seek knowledge out of the best books, uh, and you could argue that he was demonstrating that with with Clark. Uh, so. I do think a shift needs to occur. Um, I think it's it definitely needs to be a gradual shift because it can be very shocking. Uh, it's funny that this so this article this article on the ORCA the student ORCA website was has been up since since 2016. So it was kind of funny to see it all of a sudden pop up and people noticing it because because neither of us made a lot of noise about it. I was not going to make a lot of noise about it just because uh, I'm concerned about. Uh, my circumstances at BYU, and uh, the paper wasn't even out yet, so um, it was surprising to see everyone jumping on it within the same weekend. <laughs>
0: I so I want to I want to like take a second here because people consider me kind of on the on the, just on the inside edge of the church and often more critical than most people are comfortable with. And I, and I want to just stop here and kind of parse this out by saying, as I've done my research into this topic to formulate this interview with you, as I've, as I've thought through these ideas and the questions that are raised, as I listened to uh, Dr. Wayment um, with, with uh, Laura Hales on her interview, Like, what I come away with is that there's a really nice space here to actually add faith to Joseph Smith as a prophet. With the caveat that what that means has to be softened up quite a bit, but still seeing that Joseph is bringing something unique, even as he's borrowing from Adam Clark's commentary, and that as a faithful, believing Mormon, we can call that revelation and recognize that Joseph has some honest motive and some spiritual um, interaction with God. Again, softening it up, making it much more subtle, making it much less direct, perhaps, but allowing Joseph to still be this mouthpiece for God in this work. What I think, though, happens in, in the critical side is that the church has formulated a certain narrative around the Joseph Smith translation and around translation in general. And I think understanding what Joseph Smith is doing with what we have as the Joseph Smith translation compels us, if not forces us, to completely um, deconstruct and reconstruct in a new way what that means and what that could entail.
1: Is that fair? I completely agree with that. I think I think the the church has kind of shot itself in the foot, metaphorically speaking, um, because they have established these almost whitewashed uh, stories and histories, especially around Joseph Smith. And so as people uh, uncover what was really going on, it naturally incites uh, anger and, and bitterness. And I think uh, for some people, this this discovery kind of just stokes the fire in a way. Um, And so um, I've noticed on some forums that we are the brief snippet of the article that people saw. Some people were upset with the way we worded some of it, uh, like this discussion of um, room for room for revelation. I think there are quite a few people who would be happy if we just came out and said, uh, Joseph Smith plagiarized the JST, therefore he's a fraud. Um, because they're so angry about these narratives that have been built up and uh, construed. Um, but I think what people need to remember is one: this is co- this where we were coming from. We are we are both at BYU. Tom has to keep his job. I have to get my diploma. Uh, and so we talked about ways we could frame this in a way that would be palatable to people who this would actually challenge and and who would actually have to think about this, who hadn't previously thought about these kinds of things. Um, we weren't publishing this article to break shelves and destroy testimonies. We are publishing it because it's an important thing that needs to exist in the narrative. And these people who are upset with the way we word it need to understand that we had a reason when we worded it that way. And whatever our our personal feelings on it, we needed to word it in a way that would make it palatable for public consumption in the rank and file members
0: of the church. That's beautiful. That's And that's incredible. I, I appreciate um, that kind of vulnerability because I think it's a recognition that there's these two extremes, which is that there's this side who, who says this entire thing is a fraud and, and only that conclusion out of this kind of data is possible. And then you have the other side, which are orthodox Latter-day Saints who have grown up on this black and white, us versus them, either or paradigm that the church has given them. And this kind of research is going to crush that. And so there has to be this sensitivity as you kind of walk this middle line. And, and I just wanna, I want to applaud you for that and say I appreciate that. I I want to ask I mean you obviously in this research what you're presenting is that Joseph Smith and again we'll take a faithful perspective here Joseph Smith has positive motives he is feeling the inspiration again very subtle maybe not God actually telling him by a voice in his ear but but maybe this this impression that I need to give the latter day saints um something more contemporary in this Bible that they can apply it to their day in the here and now and then he goes out and seeks from the best books which he lays out in his own revelation and takes Adam Clark's commentary inserts enough parts and pieces to show that he is working really closely with it and that it's not just a coincidence but what that does is that as we talked about that crushes the narrative that the church tells about this translation. And I'm curious if you got any pushback at all, either within the university or even the church more generally, as you guys, as, as people begin to, to hear this um, drastic new interpretation based on data and evidence of how to frame these things, was there any kind of resistance?
1: So the nice thing about working with Tom is that he had a lot of foresight with this project. So we started, when we started writing it, we discussed how we were going to frame it. And we discussed what we were going to do to kind of, um, I guess, put out fires before they could start. So what we did is we wrote our paper and we sent it to the dean of his department, which is the religion, the age of scripture and church history. Uh, and we had them read it and we had some um, faculty members read it. And we took their suggestions of if we needed to soften things or if we were making uh, claims that seemed uh, incorrect. And then uh, we sent it up to the church office building where it was reviewed by the Quorum of the Twelve in the First Presidency. Uh, Tom met with some general authorities and we got the green light on it. So um, once we did all that, there wasn't any pushback really. Um, I mean, I had some peers come up to me and make comments about how we were uh, what was the comment, like, proving the church wasn't true, or something extreme. And I remember when I told that to Tom, he was like, well, I hope that's not what people think we're doing. Because uh, we were we were trying very hard to, to make this as non-threatening uh, as possible. Because we don't want it to be threatening. We just, we wanted to share this discovery that we'd found that we honestly hope will lead to further research. We hope people will read this and be like, well, if he borrowed from Clark, I wonder if he borrowed from, from this, this source over here and then do that work. And, and hopefully we'll continue to, to find things that he used and, and uh, stuff that he was aware of, because I think that's a key component of understanding who Joseph Smith was and, and the work he did was what sources he was engaging. And I mean, People have dedicated hours and hours and hours to to looking for sources for the Book of Mormon, but I think we have this whole other these these texts that haven't been looked at as closely, and I'm we're hope I'm hoping that it opens the door to that. And uh, yeah, so we haven't we haven't gotten any pushback. Uh, my my for me personally, my family has just ignored it, so. <laughs> So uh, I think that's their coping. I, I if it bugs them, they haven't said anything and then I yeah, I can't I haven't gotten any angry angry emails, but we also haven't been super vocal about it. Uh, so this is kind of the first wave I think and um, maybe once the actual book is out, it will be interesting to see how it goes. But I don't think I don't think Tom will lose his job over this and I am still getting my diploma. so I think, it's okay right
0: now. <laughs> right. A couple things here. So the one point you make, which is that the the top 15 leaders of the church have also had to, at this point, read or understand or at least have someone explain to them the data and evidence here. So they, they now know that the narrative we tell in our manuals, for instance, is very different from where the data and the evidence takes us on this issue. So we we should expect... In an age of transparency and honesty um, with with these historical records that the church has to, I mean, again, I know that these things take a long time, maybe even a decade, but that the church will likely come out with new manuals that soften drastically, perhaps, the way in which we see, for instance, the Joseph Smith translation, right? Like, these guys know now, and we can't keep telling an old story that doesn't hold up.
1: Yeah, like... We hope that they will we so we we presented the article to them in the uh, in spring of 2016 so almost two years ago and so our intention of doing that was we want to give we wanted to give them the opportunity to to wrap their minds around it to get ahead of it whatever however they wanted to handle it. So I mean in a perfect world they would, they would modify their narrative. Um, in reality, we'll just, I guess we'll just have to see what, what they do with it.
0: The, the other thing I want to just reemphasize what you've said, because I think it's important. Anybody who wants to give the two of you criticism needs to understand that you have taken the data and the evidence here and you framed it in what the two of you see is the most faithful way in which to interpret that data and evidence. So as to kind of, be honest to the research, be honest to the evidence, but also not to not to bring down people's testimonies or to to hurt someone's faith.
1: Yeah, like we wrote it in a way that the uh, how do I want to say this? The most blissfully unaware uh, Orthodox lay member could would could approach it and come away okay. But we also wrote it in a way that those who are, uh, who sniff out this kind of thing and who look for this kind of discussion can understand that it's important. Um, and so we didn't want to, we didn't want this to be a dividing thing. And I think there are some people who are upset over that choice, which you can't please them all, I guess.
0: So. No, no, I tot- yeah, totally get it. I just, I just want to make sure like the listeners get like you guys framed this as faithfully as you could. Um, not to because obviously the the research is important this this discovery is important to ignore it is is it's just not it doesn't feel right like it has to be talked about it has to be addressed it has to be published it has to be out there in in this uh in this discussion of mormonism and joseph smith and how all these things work and and you guys framed it as faithfully as as you could um was there any, I assume you've already answered this. You can just say yes or no. I I assume there was no pressure to edit this work, right? Like you guys basically felt your own internal pressure, but nobody from outside the two of you said like, Hey, you got to take this out or Hey, you got to put that in.
1: No, Nope. I mean, it was, it was fine. And, and to my knowledge, I mean, to my knowledge, I, I was the student researcher here, so I could have been shielded from anything like that. But, uh, as far as what Tom's told me, everyone has been fine with it. And we we tried to listen to any any critiques that came from faculty, but it was nothing like you can't publish this. Uh, it was mostly just, well, be aware of this conversation that's going on and things like that. So, yeah, there was there was no pressure to edit. I, I haven't seen the most recent proofs from uh, the University of Utah Press, but to my knowledge, they they left our work as we published it. So.
0: Awesome. Um the Apocrypha, just a quick question, has there been any research done on your guys's part or any other th- information that you are aware of in terms of looking at Joseph's interaction with the Apocrypha and a whether he brought any outside sources into his thoughts on the Apocrypha as well as whether that that set of documents had any impact on him using it for other things?
1: Um, not that I'm aware of. It sounds like a whole nother project. (laughs) Um,
0: And you've you've already got two projects on your plate, right? Yeah. Oh,
1: yes.
0: (laughs) Um, okay, good. And again, I I know the listener is going to perceive me kind of stammering and and rambling. It's just because this, this is so big and I want to make sure I hit all these kinds of angles that we're talking about. Um, I know Dr. Wayman and and I've called him brother Wayman and I hope either one is okay with him, but with Dr. Wayman, he made a comment on the other podcast about, it seems Obvious that Joseph is dealing much more heavily with what were italicized words in that King James Bible that he was familiar with, and and it, he made the the recognition that these italicized words were words that the translators were a little more uh, iffy on whether it was the right word or not, and it seems that Joseph saw that as well and went right after it. Um, any thoughts from you? In terms of in Joseph Smith's day, would it have been commonly understood by Joseph and others that those words were more up for grabs?
1: I think so. Um, you have a lot of different conversations going on around this time of, of the existing text of the Bible and, and what was what's good in it and what's not and what's legitimate and what's not. And depending on the circles you run in, you would likely – you run into all different kinds of opinions. Um, but I think universally the italicized words were accepted as as things that were were added on and were fair game to to um, to look at and to examine and to to modify if that need be. And I also think in the in the 19th century, 18th century, excuse me, 18th century, um, in that time period, there There were some people who looked at the Bible as this inerrant text that couldn't be uh, fiddled with or modified or or studied to the point that you were imposing these different ideas. But there were a lot of groups that were uh, dismantling it. And I think Joseph was just one of the many that uh, was looking at this and uh, drew on these these. Uh, preconceived notions of of what was fair game. I I honestly don't think they a lot of I thought, I think a lot of them didn't approach it and say this part of the Bible is fair game and this part isn't. I just think their their view of the Bible was a little different than uh, what some modern uh, what some modern uh, congregations and sects would would say now. If if I'm making sense, I'm not sure if I am. So in terms of italicized words, I think I think the answer is is yes that he was aware of it and that. It was he was just um, engaging I engaging in the conversation that was going on around him in terms of biblical uh, literacy and uh, in terms of how to how we understand the Bible so
0: got it, got it. Um, Dr. Wayman, in his interview with Laura Hales he, it's his exact quote he says we we don't have we have no good answers, no good answers is the the phrase he used for why Joseph Smith used the Adam Clark commentary. And again, I think it goes back, we've been kind of hitting on this over and over again, and it's really the theme of of this discussion, is the idea that we're going to have to change what it means for Joseph Smith to have translated. And we see it with this Bible translation that the word translation and Joseph uses, I mean, he's the one who uses that word with this work and, and with other works that he did. But at least with the Bible translation we have to see the word translation differently and include a prophet using uh, other the work of other human beings who are not prophet seers and revelators using their scholarship using their insight using their ideas and and going off and saying like hey these ideas are 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 smarter than anything I could come up with even as, I, even as I communicate with God, so I'm, I'm going to use these. And, and we ought to probably recognize, and again, I'm, I'm trying to just kind of wrap my head around it as I'm talking to you. We ought to probably recognize that um, using other, other work by other scholars, by other authors, it, it runs so counter to how we see this idea. And yet we're going to have to just own up to the idea that prophets are not communicating or doing doing things inside a vacuum, and that maybe we need to deeply soften this to the point where Adam Clark isn't receiving revelation necessarily. He's putting down scholarship. He's putting down good ideas. Joseph Smith is taking Adam Clark's ideas and putting them into his translation of the Bible, but we ought to recognize that that doesn't mean that Adam Clark was perfect on each of these things, and that it's highly likely that that Joseph is making changes to the text, at least some of those changes not being the most accurate way in which to do something. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, like not. Yeah, I agree. Like not Joseph's every change th- that he made was uh, under the influence of uh, revelation. If if that's how you want to look at it, it wasn't. I'm sure. So there are definitely some changes where he was he incorporated them likely because Clark says. Well, in all of these manuscripts, this is what it should be. And so he changed it. Um, At least in some of them, there appears to be some like logical and methodical reasons for them, but it's not true of all of them.
0: Right. And and to go one step further, that Joseph Smith would have plagiarized from Adam Clark ideas that Clark had that may not be up to par with the best scholarship today, or even accurate if we just say like truth and error.
1: Yeah that's fair. Clark wasn't
0: infallible. (laughs) Right. And so if, if Adam Clark is fallible, and some of his ideas are fallible, and Joseph Smith is implementing another person outside of himself and God, and using that work, and that work is fallible, again, it just speaks volumes to the way in which we're going to have to begin to frame translation. I want to follow it up with another Insight, which is, you mentioned this in the very beginning, and I didn't want to hit on it then. I wanted it to kind of come out of the discussion at the right time. But this idea that we have zero evidence, other than the obvious direct borrowing that is in the translation itself, we have zero evidence of anybody speaking to Adam Clark's commentary being on the table side by side as Joseph is. Uh, either, and I should, let's say this too. Is Joseph Smith doing this work on his own by himself in a room or are there scribes involved and he's dictating?
1: There are scribes. It depends because Joseph, he like, he had these phases that he went in and anyone who's familiar with the JST knows that he had various scribes and individuals who took note notes for him. Among them were Sidney Rigdon and uh, Oliver Cowdery and individuals like that. Um, and it's hard to know... It's pretty clearly laid out um, who did what, when. Scho- scholars have been able to to lay out somewhat of a timeline, and um, but there is no no mention of Clark in any direct quotes that we're able to find. Uh, and then there, we also have a direct quote from Joseph Smith, who even says he opened the Bible and the entire Bible was opened up to his view, and that doesn't mention Clark either. So you kind of you have this narrative that was uh, created even at the time that doesn't include Clark, and and I'm sh- maybe it's buried in a quote somewhere that we just don't have, but of what we have, there's no mention of Clark. Uh, we did do so it's in the paper, but we did do some research into Joseph's connection to Methodism, since Clark Clark's commentary was a Methodist commentary, um, and there's a later, it's like. Uh, Twenty years later, after after Joseph died, uh, there's a story that uh, Emma's uncle, who was a Methodist, was in the room in a in the room we believe at the Hale home with Joseph, and he says if you can translate, then take Clark's Bible commentary and translate or something along those lines, and so we don't know who. Uh, the Clark volume belonged to, uh, but there seems to be some awareness of Clark in that overall, that surrounding conversation uh, that Joseph might have been a part of in terms of his involvement with Methodism, even after uh, his first vision. So,
0: Right, Joseph is attracted to Methodism, yes. he admits that himself, and so Methodist ideas and Methodist theology, it would be natural for Joseph to feel inclined or pulled in that direction when he's curious about something. Um, So, so we're hitting on this idea that there's no evidence anywhere from any, from Joseph or from any of the scribes who would have been working on this project with him. And and there certainly were scribes, at least for large portions of this. I'm taking that from what you're saying. And nobody mentions that Adam Clark's commentary is sitting out on the table and, and again, I'm asking you to take at least maybe your two cents, not necessarily a definitive uh, approach on what's true and what isn't true, but is it is it fair to say that the, the connection between Adam Clark's commentary and the Bible translation is so strong that the most likely answer for this is that the commentary is sitting there on the table or that Joseph at the very least is intimately familiar with that commentary if it's not in the room.
1: I would say that's fair. I mean, we don't know. We know some of the, the books that he owned, but we don't know all of them. It's high. I mean, I did research into how prolific was Adam Clark in this time, like in terms of booksellers, like were they selling it? How much were they selling it for? Uh, and it, it was a very common work just all up and down uh, the East Coast and even into the Midwest. Um, so it's highly possible and it seems, uh, probable from the connections that we have that Joseph, uh, if he, if it wasn't on the table, uh, and if he didn't own it, then he had read it, uh, thoroughly before he did his Bible, uh, translation. And I would go as far to say that he, at some point during his Bible translation, he had to have read it because these, these changes are just too similar They're too, like, they're too strong. Um, The wording in some places is just too connected um, that it's hard to say that Joseph didn't have it while at some point while he was working on the translation.
0: Right. And not just vaguely familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Like he understood Clark's commentary. Either A, he's looking at it directly as he's doing the work or B, he's so intimately familiar with it that it's natural for him to be able to pull those concepts from Clark to use them in this translation. Um, so I'm going to put on my critical hat for a moment and because it raises two things that I think need to be mentioned. One is which often the apologists in the church, when they're dealing with the translation of the Book of Mormon, for instance, they point out, like, look, nobody says there's any other document in the room. Nobody says Joseph's got his King James Bible. Nobody says he's got anything else that he's using. So we just have to take people at face value. The the one criticism here would be that Joseph is so intimately familiar with Clark's commentary that if it's in the room and nobody mentions it, then i think that's an important observation to make because i think it relates then to these other translations where the critics sense that other works are helping joseph formulate those ideas and specifically the book of mormon and if we can't trust and i don't mean there's any dishonesty here not at all so i hope that i hope that's understood like for whatever reason the scribes who helped joseph smith with this with this project they saw no reason to mention that Joseph was working with Adam Clark's commentary. And hence, we need to take that same understanding back into other translations and at the very least grant space that with the Book of Mormon translation, for instance, we also then should not expect those who worked with Joseph to feel it important to mention what other things Joseph was using in that work. Like like if we're going to grant space for one idea... And that same idea is at work in another place in our in our history, we ought to at least grant that space. The other issue is that if Clark's commentary is not in the room, and if Joseph Smith is going home every night, pulling it off his shelf, reading the next, you know, book or chapter or however much progress he makes each day, if Joseph Smith goes home that night, pulls it off the shelf, reads it, um, Deliberately enough to be intimately familiar with what he's going to go into the next day and revise, then again, we also ought to grant that same space for other works of translation by Joseph Smith, that he has the brain power, the ability, the memory, the um, intelligence, and the gifts to be able to go off and read other works, to memorize those works. Again, if Clark's commentary is not in the room, and be able to take that which he read the night before, or the week before, or the month before, and take that into his project that next day when he goes to do that revision. Is that fair to make kind of those two observations and at least make the space for those?
1: Yeah, I think it's completely fair. I think there's some. I think we're spec We're obviously speculating some uh, over what exactly happened in the process, but I think I think one of the things that this these findings show. Is that this narrative that Joseph couldn't have translated the Book of Mormon because he was uneducated uh, needs to to stop? Um, this idea, yeah, this idea that Joseph was unlearned, I think, has been uh, thoroughly uh, debunked, I guess, or disproven, um, because obviously, clearly, Joseph was aware from what the research we've done with Adam Clark with uh, Buck's Theological Commentary, which is a text that uh, people like Rigdon who was very learned, was thoroughly aware of. So if Joseph is reading these texts, there's some, there's clearly some, uh, he, he's not dumb, basically. Uh, and,
0: and in fact, maybe more than that, maybe he's brilliant.
1: Yeah, I would say I would go so far to say that he's brilliant. In terms of talking about uh, when we finished the this project, We did turn for a time to the Book of Mormon. um, But, I mean, it's just such a huge project that we had to move on. um, And we didn't find much. We did look at Adam Clark uh, in terms of the Book of Mormon. There are a couple interesting things, but not enough to say Joseph had Clark when he was uh, doing work with the Book of Mormon. I think we also need to look, we need to look ahead to the Book of Abraham as well. um, And keep in mind that Perhaps one of the reasons I think you alluded to this in your comments, that his scribes and the people in the room didn't say anything about Joseph either having books on the table or even directly borrowing from these books is because it was such a might have been such a common thing for them that I mean, and they they weren't recording. They weren't necessarily recording uh, these events so that researchers like Tom and I could come back and be like, now, which books were in the room with him? Uh, so I think, I definitely think the narrative needs to shift. And I think we need to be open to the fact that, uh, how do do I want to say this? All of these texts, uh, were products of, in large part, products of Joseph's time and the sources, uh, and the texts that Joseph both had and was aware of. And I think if we can, if, if Mormonism as a faith community, uh, can move into that space, I think you will see less people angrily leaving. I don't think that would st- like. I don't think that would uh, stop. But I think if the church could f- could frame a narrative where we allow for this engagement of scholarly work, um, I just think it's. I think it would be a far better place to be, and it would also lend itself to um, a lot more in-depth research. I think more people would would be willing to engage it, and um, individuals who might not otherwise um, be interested in these conversations would engage in these conversations, and I just think it would create a a far more open and safer community
0: uh, for everybody. Um, Two things I want to hit on. One, which you're hitting on right now, is that the church has told a simplified black-and-white whitewashed narrative even if it did so innocently like i'm happy to grant that for a moment and say like the leaders of our past weren't scholars we they didn't live in an information age like today they 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 received the story a certain way and they repeated the story a certain way and they out of maybe motives that are genuine to protect members and their faith and to protect the church frame these stories in a certain way but but now here we are 2018 and we have to now see that as we've painted ourselves into a corner on a narrative that doesn't hold up specifically with this issue. But I'm going to say, I'm not speaking for you, Haley, but I'm going to say extends to a thousand other issues just like it, where we've painted ourselves into a corner and, and understandably, people get upset when they learn that the story they were told and they invested their lives in is not true. As Richard Bushman said, the dominant narrative is not true. It cannot sustain itself. So I want to honor that for anybody who's listening, that the church, and I don't mean this rudely, but the church is now on watch. It now knows that its story is false and inaccurate on a thousand places, and it's now responsible to fix that, but more than that, to also be vulnerable and own that it told the wrong story, and again, it can say it was innocent that's fine it can it can say like it wasn't intentional and and you know it, we're sorry that it happened, but it happened nonetheless and to own it. The other thing I want to go back to is i I want to push i'm I, I'm sitting here criticizing the church for a black and white paradigm I'm going to push us into a black and white paradigm okay. here in that. We're forced into one of two conclusions, I think. If if we own the premise that Joseph Smith worked with Adam Clark's commentary extremely closely and it was either in the room with him or he was intimately familiar with it and using it, then I think we're forced into one of two conclusions. One, if it's in the room, it is absolutely understood that scribes in the process didn't talk about it, at least on this occasion. And so now it becomes absolutely reasonable and rational to say, like, at least in one instance, scribes felt no need to talk about these outside sources that Joseph Smith is using. And the other paradigm is that if it's not in the room, then Joseph Smith becomes an incredible genius who is very good at, at absorbing information and putting it back out from other sources in his translation work. And people can extend that as far as they want to into into Joseph Smith's other projects, but nobody, as you point out, nobody can say, if Clark's commentary is not in the room, Joseph Smith is a bumbling country bumpkin. You can't. And if Adam Clark's commentary is in the room, you can no longer say we automatically have to trust scribes and witnesses to the work When they don't talk about other sources being used. And I think we are pushed into that black and white paradigm, regardless of what conclusion you take. Um, and you have to pick one or the other, at least if you go where you and, uh, and Dr. Wayment go with where the evidence and the data take us. So that said, let's, let's move on. Um, Sydney Rigdon. There's a lot of conversation about how early Joseph Smith might have known Sidney, whether Sidney would have been a fan of Clark's commentary, whether it's Sidney Rigdon who gives uh, Joseph the awareness that this commentary is out there and to use it. Anything and you know anything in your research that shows that Rigdon would have been the man behind encouraging Joseph to use this work or any awareness on your part that Rigdon might have been involved with Mormonism earlier than what most scholarship points to?
1: So, um, first of all, we did do research into, uh, Rigdon's awareness of Clark, potential awareness of Clark, and Campbell, who Rigdon was, I can't remember, why can't I remember Campbell's first name? Anyway, Campbell, who, uh, Rigdon was kind of close, well, okay, not kind of, he was closely associated with Campbell, um, in fact, there's a quote where Campbell quotes Clark directly uh, within the time period that Rigdon would have been associated with him. So we see this con- with this conversation, this existing conversation surrounding Clark, um, where Rigdon would have been intimately aware of it uh, in terms of when Rigdon and Joseph uh, came into contact um we tried to do some work with that, uh, but we—it's hard to really draw a conclusion about it because there's not there's not like a journal entry say with Joseph saying today I met Sydney Rigdon kind of thing, um, and we just knew that he was brought on to the to the work, and when he was brought on, Joseph jumped uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament roughly around that time. Um, is there evidence currently that they knew each other sooner? I mean, I don't think it's impossible, but I don't feel comfortable definitively saying one way or the other.
0: Um, right. The the evidence seems really weak and it seems more of a conspiracy theory type idea. And, And yes, there's a little bit of it out there. You've got, I think Rigdon's like nephew and his, and his son or grandson making a comment about how Joseph knew him sooner, but but again, the evidence is flimsy. I think at best, when taken in the context of everything else out there, um, is there any any evidence that Rigdon would have appreciated, utilized, and saw value in uh, Adam Clark's commentary?
1: I mean, you know, as I mentioned in my previous comment, comment there it was obvious that Rigdon. Uh, it seemed clear that Rigdon was aware of the conversation, and what's important is is this quote from Campbell. Uh, he, Campbell quotes, like, basically plagiarizes uh, in an introduction from Clark, uh, a big long paragraph from Clark. So I think that was a big deal for us to find because it shows that Joseph isn't the only one who's utilizing Clark in the way he's util- utilizing him uh, in terms of just direct borrowing. And uh, in terms of Rigdon being excited or interested in, in what Joseph was doing, I... I I think it's possible, but I think it was just normal. I don't, like, I don't think Joseph was reinventing the wheel, uh, in terms of how he was, how he was doing stuff. I think that's just kind of generally speaking in a way, what was, what a lot of different people were, it's the way in which a lot of different people were engaging these sources at this time. Uh, so I don't think it would have been either exciting or, or shocking or, or anything like that. I just think it would have just been what was happening. Um, I think it's possible that Rigdon made Joseph aware of sources that he wasn't previously aware of. But if he did that with Clark, I mean, we can't say 100%. Either
0: way, I this question may make no sense, and, and if it doesn't, like, let's just say something, and I'll just cut it out okay. of the thing entirely. But Radio Free Mormon, again, him and I have had these conversations kind of around this interview, and and he's this much smarter guy than me. And, and I don't know this connection, so you're going to have to either speak to this or just say like you're not familiar with it. But there's this idea of how soon, you know, whether Rigdon is helping him with the Clark commentary or not, whether, whether it's important to him, whether he's aware of it. There's this idea in, uh, in third Nephi where Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount and there's this phrase without a cause. And, and I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but it, it seems like, if I'm not mistaken, um, that without a cause was removed from the Sermon on the Mount, not only in the Joseph Smith translation, but also in the Book of Mormon and 3rd Nephi. And this seems significant, right? Like it happens early on in the Book of Mormon, which is at the very beginning of Joseph's uh, prophetic work. And I just, any thoughts you have on that phrase, it being removed in the timeline of where it's removed and when.
1: So it was removed from the JST. Um, as we said, as I, it was an example I shared, but, but Clark says it shouldn't be there. So yeah, you do run into this idea of, this is kind of what instigated our, our look at, did Clark, did Clark influence the book of Mormon at all? It's just so hard to know. (laughs) Um,
0: is this really the only instance in the Book of Mormon that we see a possibility of Clark's commentary having influence, or are there, are there other there, pieces? I'm actually
1: pulling something up. There's one more. Yeah, we like created theological timelines for like when Joseph's theology developed and changed. What I'm trying to find is I made a document about uh, the Book of Mormon and Clark. It's possible, I definitely think more work could be done with this. But again, the, the Book of Mormon is probably one of the biggest rabbit holes you could get trapped in. So between Clark and I, and the Book of Mormon, of course, we went to the Isaiah passages, right? Because that is definitely makes up a lot. Like, so Joseph Smith did some changes in Isaiah and there's lots of Isaiah in the Book of Mormon. So we figured if we're going to make any connections, it would probably be, be there. OK, the one connection that is really interesting, there's two... Isaiah Connections. Um, so one of them is in Isaiah 50, verse 2, where the KJV has their fish stinketh because there is no water. Clark observes it being the water dried up, so it st- um, and it stands in some manuscripts. And it's confirmed by the Septuagint that they shall be dried up. And then the Book of Mormon has and their fish do stink because the waters are dried up. Um, or because, so, Isaiah has there is no water, and then the Book of Mormon has their water is dried up, and Clark has their water is dried up, which is fine. The next one, which is, I think, more interesting, is Isaiah 53, 6, where the verse reads, All we, like sheep, have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, Clark says, for Avan, which is iniquity, the ancient interpreters read Avanot, which is iniquities, plural. Um, and so the verse should read, "To meet in Him the iniquities of us all." The Book of Mormon has, "And the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquities of us all." So it's plural. Is it Clark? <clears throat> Maybe, but there's just two examples.
0: Right. So there's there's enough evidence there for it to be plausible and and maybe even bordering on reasonable if you just take a scholarly mind frame and let your take your faithful hat off for just a moment and not need a not have a need to defend the, the Book of Mormon. It, it seems like it's at least plausible and perhaps even reasonable to, to say Clark's commentary is part of what goes into formulate the Book of Mormon, but the evidence isn't strong enough to to make it probable.
1: Yeah. And then there's one more which this was the first one I found, and I like it was like shocking to me. Uh, so, in Second Nephi 31:21, you have the verse: "There is none other way nor name given under heaven whereby men can be saved in the kingdom of God." Um, Yay yeah, there is, and then continuing, yea, there. <clears throat> in Helaman 5:9, excuse me. So, that first verse was that first quote was from Second Nephi 31:21, but then we also have Helaman 5:9, which says. There is no other way nor means whereby man can be saved only through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And then Clark, in his discussion of Hebrews 10, um, he remarks, closing in with this so solemnly declared will of God, that there is no name given under heaven among men by which we can be saved, but Jesus the Christ. We believe in him and find redemption in his blood, um, that all should believe on him and be saved from their sins. So, again, you have this potential engagement. Uh, And what's interesting about that one is it's not like it's Clark, if Joseph is borrowing that, it's literally just borrowing Clark's comment. He's pulling ideas from Clark's commentary on a verse and not uh, like suggested changes. But again, it's so tenuous. There's just three examples that we were able to find. Um, And so you kind of have to sit with this and think, okay, if, if Joseph Smith borrowed with the JST, it would stand to reason that uh, that might not have been his first rodeo with, with borrowing and drawing on sources. Uh, the issue with the Book of Mormon is it's, it's such an interest, intricate text that it's really you, it's hard to know. Um, and, I mean, you could dedicate your life to it, and I still don't know that you would find what's going on or completely unravel what's going on. Uh, So then, of course, we're left with, so what, what's there? Um, And so if you're, if you're approaching it, if you're trying to approach it from a faithful perspective, I think, I think you do have to move away from this narrative of the Book of Mormon not being a 19th century text. Um, There's a, there's an interesting article coming out in the same translation volume that addresses that issue on some level, and hopefully it's out. Before you release this podcast, so I, uh, so I don't think I'll get in trouble, but I just think hopefully it's out before um, you release this because there's a there's an article in the Book of Mormon that discusses the importance of, of moving towards the narrative of a 19th century text, which I think is really important. There's also an article in there on the Book of Abraham, uh, and some discussion of of maybe when in, what went into that, uh, similar to our JST one. JST article. Uh, so I think I think these narratives these narratives are shifting, and uh, if the church is the church is definitely going back. You you had some comment about the church uh, necess like there's a necessary change for it to uh, for it to change its narrative, and I think right now the church is playing defense in a lot of ways, and I think they just need to. Uh, Start moving into this space. All this narrative of the Book of Mormon is either true or it's not. Uh, if the Book, of, like if the Book of Mormon is true, the church is true. Uh, if I'm being completely honest and vulnerable here, it's that it's it's that um, narrative that led to my own faith crisis. This idea that the Book of Mormon has to be this this ancient perfect text. Uh, it was in doing this research that. I realized that it wasn't, and that led led me to to my own faith crisis. So I think I think it's really important that the church uh, changes that. And if if they want to keep these people who are intellectually engaging with the history and the text, they're going to have to change their narrative. If they don't, then I mean, people will stay. Like that's. People will stay because it's comfortable and it's cultural and it's what they've known. But the people who are looking critically at these texts, it's going to be, I think it's going to become harder and harder uh, with all the stuff, with everything that, uh, with all the research being done and all the new discoveries being made, it's going to be harder and harder to, to maintain the existing narrative.
0: And, And I, and I want to say like, first, thank you for saying that the longer the church waits to go on the offensive and and by offensive I mean like own it like own like this is way messier than we thought it was and things are not the way we told you and here here here's what we used to teach that that wasn't appropriate that wasn't right that wasn't accurate and here's now what we're going to teach and until they show that level of vulnerability and honesty they might be softening the blow here and now in terms of people's faith and shelves and and those who are leaving the church, they might slow that down some, some they might think at least. I think long-term it's doing irreparable damage. Um, and I'm glad that you're you're speaking to that. I want to hit on one more point and then I want to kind of end just spending a few minutes talking about where you're at in your own journey and in and, and reaction to this issue because we're running out of time and, and I had one question or at least one comment left. You're hitting on some things. Um, the church is deeply behind in scholarship. It's framed a narrative where the King James Version of the Bible is the best and and often kind of framed as the only appropriate translation to use. I think the way Joseph Smith approaches this translation and the research and data you guys are speaking to points to the idea that Joseph saw the King James Version as deeply fallible and open to criticism and open to correction and revision, and we ought to see it the same way I think the church has to own that there are other translations of the Bible out there and that they are almost certainly more useful in making the scriptures more accurate and making the scriptures more useful to us in today's day and age. Um, You point to the idea that the Book of Mormon, as the research begins to now come out, I think, a little more fast and furious, and and it's going to increase. The Book of Mormon has to be owned as being partly a 19th century work. The trouble with the church owning that new narrative is it it deeply. The next step, if you if you say, okay, I'm going to wrap my arms around that and I'm going to embrace it, the next step is that you're going to these leaders are going to have to let go of a dramatic piece of their authority in in the way that we frame them as prophets, seers, and revelators, and we framed it in a way that these guys are like Moses, Noah, and Abraham. They have access to God magic. They can strike a critic dumb or deaf or mute, just like Book of Mormon prophets did. They can part the seas, just like Book of Mo- uh, Old Testament prophets did. They can um, receive angelic visitors and heal limbs uh, that have been been severed off, just like in the New Testament. And the reality is that in today's day and age of 2018, none of those things are visibly apparent. None of those things seem to happen. And so these men are going to have to get off of this pedestal of being um, prophets, seers, and revelators in the way that they've imposed to the church and they're going to have to take a much more human approach like, yeah, we get some good feelings it's the same feelings you guys get but our stewardship is different and we're just winging it like you are and And I think that's a step that these guys have to take and it's going to be it's going to be hairy because I think every decision now plays out on whether Mormonism lives or dies in 300 years um, and, and I think Each one of these questions are important. And if they just take the short-term look of trying to shelter the church from this messiness right now, I think they paint themselves more and more into a corner of killing the church in 300 years. And that's just me talking. That's not you. (laughs) Um, Having said all that, let's wrap up talking about your faith journey. Um, If you feel comfortable talking about it, and you kind of hinted already that you are, um, what has this research done to your own testimony, and and what has your faith journey looked like uh, over the last, say, year or two?
1: Yeah, so I've actually like never talked about this on a podcast before because I've had to, kind of had to, I don't want to say suffer in silence, but definitely keep it close to the close to the belt. And uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so starting this research. Uh, you know, naturally, you come into contact with things that are going to be challenging. Uh, and I mean, credit to my major at BYU, you know, they'd already exposed me to the documentary hypothesis, which is the theory of different authors for the the first five books of Moses, Pentateuch, and then, of course, the theories surrounding who wrote the Gospels. And, and so I, was, I wasn't a stranger uh, to breaking existing narratives um but i think what made this one so hard uh was you know you build your life on the idea well the church builds this narrative on the idea that if the book of mormon is true the church is true and uh when i when i started coming across very convincing evidence that the book of mormon was in large part um a 19th century text that drew on 19th century sources and conversations and attitudes. Um, it was like someone had taken a bucket of ice water and thrown it over my head. And I realized I, I remember distinctly thinking, what if the church isn't true? Now, I was fortunately, so this happened um, August September of 2015, as we were beginning to write this paper. And I was very fortunate to have a really good uh, YSA bishop because I, looking back on it now, I realize it could have gone a lot of different ways. But uh, when I went in there, he, um, I just told him that I had questions and he was very excited um, and uh, gave me a very soft place to land and kind of helped me slow down and uh, helped me realize that the building I was standing in wasn't completely burning down and that I shouldn't jump out the window. Um, And, you know, these professors that I've worked with, uh, Tom was a big help um, in kind of slowing my my panic trajectory and helping me sit down and and accept that it's okay and that um, my world isn't – it felt like my world was falling apart, but that my world wasn't entirely falling apart. Uh, If I hadn't had them, I probably would have left BYU, which, I mean, to some – some people probably think that would have been the better choice. And in some ways, it probably would have. Um, And so it kind of opened up that that realization that the Book of Mormon uh, wasn't true in the way that the church says it is in a lot of ways um, led to an unraveling of of basically everything else, as I think anyone would expect. Uh, My bishop introduced me to Mormon Matters, which was a nice, a nice, gentle place to kind of go and start exploring things. And I remember when when uh, they would have people on who talked about how they left the church because of their questions, I would think, "Well, I'll never get to that point. I just have questions." Uh, but then it just—it became really hard to go to church. Uh, and uh, contrary to what Reddit thinks, I started going to the the counseling center at BYU, and I, I've had a great therapist for the past two years who has also kind of helped me stand back and and uh, realize that. Uh, the world is still beautiful, even though the world I had previously constructed has kind of fallen apart. Uh, another great place that I landed was Community of Christ in Salt Lake. Uh, my wonderful bishop allowed me to attend there instead of going to LDS services for a while. And, uh, I think their narrative is kind of the direction that if, if the LDS church wants to survive, they kind of need to start moving that way. Um. And then amidst all of this, I had my husband who actually was on a mission at the time. And uh, we were riding. We'd never met. We were riding. Um, and I remember telling him that we'd been riding for basically his entire mission without meeting. And that's another story. But I remember telling him that I needed to um, to talk to him and not the missionary him, but the person him. and And we started chatting about my questions. And he was very supportive, which is amazing because he was nearing the end of his mission. And and I worried that he would kind of just bear his testimony to me and leave it there but he was very supportive and uh, anyway moving forward uh, I'm at the place now almost uh, two and a half years later uh, where my husband and I have kind of kind of took this journey together I was keeping a blog for a while that was chronicling my my experiences and my discovery of of things and how I felt about them and Uh, Unfortunately, that made its way to the Honor Code office uh, about a year ago, two years ago. It was two years ago. Um, And unfortunately, I got to see how um, authority figures, uh, individuals of authority at BYU, feel about uh, people who are going through things like I was going through, and their concern for protecting the school and protecting the name of the church. Um, though they gave, though they gave me a warning, they let me off with a warning. Um, it was very clear that their their larger concern was that I quote don't infect the other students with my questions and my doubts. So um, BYU has been an interesting place since then. Uh, like I said, we've had to keep I've had to keep this research quiet and my feelings quiet. Fortunately, I have a very supportive spouse, um, and we. Because of where we are, we were and are in our faith journeys. We uh, married outside the temple uh, a year and a half ago. And um, we're both uh, we're both meant definitely mentally out. Um, I'm to a place now where I can, I can accept Mormonism as a part of a part of uh, who I was and in a large part who I am. But uh, my husband and I both live very comfortably as as agnostic atheists. And um, it was a strange transition from a very orthodox uh, TBM Mormon to this belief that no one and nothing makes makes these plans really for us, but the beauty is in is in the uncertainty and in the in the not knowing and and the be able and to be able to kind of create yourself and your belief systems and and take that back. Um, mm-hmm. That has kind of just become what's beautiful to me and. And uh, I, I have family who's who's very Mormon and who doesn't know where I'm at, uh, mostly because I'm at BYU. And I, I would like to think that none of them would would um, turn me over to the honor code office, but you just can't know. So, so nobody knows that uh, my husband and I have mentally left the church, and thankfully I'm under the radar. And I have my last ecclesi- I, I did what I needed to to get my last ecclesiastical endorsement, and. And then I'm graduating, and, and it kind of feels like freedom in a lot of ways. So wow. that's where I'm at.
0: Wow. I, I just – so first off, my heart goes out to you because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people now who are experiencing the same fracture in in the, the narrative they've held their life to, and, and then to have that narrative just crumble – Um, I'm I'm touched by things, and we've only got a few minutes left. I've got to wrap up here in about eight minutes, but um, I'm touched by the awareness we all have of both the the coercion, and I I say that because I think that's the best word, the coercion both said and unsaid by those in our tribe who look to compel us to look and walk and talk like what what you need to to be in that tribe. Does that make sense? And for the authorities at BYU, again, this is one of my, it's one of the things that makes me angry is the, when you look at anybody in Mormonism who stays, anybody who's in, when I listen to interviews on other podcasts, um, scholars on Mormon matters, people I've had on the podcast in the past, it's almost like there's this underlying awareness that i I have to frame my words a certain way. Otherwise, this tribe will look down on me and I no longer will fit with these people. Yeah. And, and you can see it, whether it's Terrell Givens or Richard Bushman, Patrick Mason, it, it doesn't matter. And I'm not picking on any one of those guys. It could be any, any scholar. We are all choosing our words carefully and not saying what we really think and feel because the power of authority and those who can hurt us is so powerful. And those things are both said and unsaid and it's deeply unhealthy. It, it causes deep trauma, like just the risk of you being true to yourself and the penalty that holds in this minority, high demand fundamentalist religion is crazy. And, and yet there it is. And yet we all have to be respectful of it or damage is done and trauma is caused. And it's, it's, It's something that has to change. Um, You're speaking to this idea that the moment Mormonism opens up a new narrative to what it really means to translate in the fallibility of its founder and the messiness of our history, then people are no longer going to blindly follow these top 15 men. And I think that scares them to death. And, And I don't know, I think they don't know what to do with that because I think this machine then begins to drastically slow down and Mormonism has to choose whether it stays a true church that is unhealthy and people walk away from in droves or whether Mormonism becomes a good church that no longer has all these definitive truth claims. And I still think people walk away in droves and, and and it's that wrestle it's going to have to do. Um, Haley Lamont, I, I just want to say thank you for coming on. Thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for being just honest to, to this conversation. And and I can't say enough like I wish you the best and, and I'm I'm assuming there's gonna be a huge burden kind of off your shoulders when that diploma is handed out and you can kind of live outwardly as authentic as you're trying to do inwardly. Um, that tension is unbearable as, as I can speak to, and most other Mormons can speak to that tension is bearable that you have to publicly hold a false narrative out front. When in reality, you know, deep down, like this thing is way more problematic than anybody around you sees. Um, I just, again, I I know I'm speaking a lot of words here. I just want to say thank you for being who you are and for being honest to your search for truth and, and, I applaud you, and also just my heart goes out to you, and I'm grateful that you're going to have a chance here in the near future to be more authentic to yourself.
1: Thanks. Appreciate it, and thanks for having me on and uh, letting me talk about this. I've, I've wanted to comment on co- a couple of the thre- existing threads, but kind of felt like I needed to uh, maintain some uh, distance a little bit, so I really appreciate this, this opportunity.
0: Yeah. Again, thank you. And uh, you give me the when, and and we'll send this out. And and I think that the listeners of the podcast will see this as a groundbreaking conversation within Mormonism, and, and another point, another line in the sand, where we say, "Look, LDS Church, we've we've loved what you've given us in the past. We love the meaning you held in our lives, but 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 right now in 2018, you're not being honest and transparent and forthright." And we we need you to step up. We need you to be something that is good, and not so concerned with authority and obedience, um, but to be to be good and to be honest and to be transparent. And, and I think what is the most important word Mormonism is going to have to adapt to is vulnerability. Haley Lamont, thank you so much for being on today, and uh, uh, God bless you and all you do. Even from an agnostic <laughs> atheist perspective, I'm in that same boat in some ways, and. And I I just want to say thank you for all you did today for, for just sharing this conversation.
1: Thank you so much.